I love that little clip from history, 1987, uh, Ronald Reagan calling for Gorbachev to tear down the, the Berlin Wall, and it wasn't too long after that that it did actually come down. Speaking into the world of prejudice and discrimination and favoritism. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles uh, with me this morning, if you would, uh, James chapter 2, or if you've got a phone. Uh, it would be helpful to uh, open up and just kind of follow along. It follows sequentially as we go through the text this morning. Uh, isn't it exciting to know that ushers are, are talked about in the Bible? <laughs> Thank you, ushers, here for serving uh, so faithfully 52 Sundays of the year. Uh, you do a, such a great job for us. We, we couldn't survive without you, so thank you for your ministry. We heard a story last week, uh, Pastor Adam told it, of an usher who became the focus of an illustration that would go down in the annals of biblical history. And uh, you have to wonder, was it just a story? Did it really happen? Uh, Is James aware of perhaps how many times it actually did happen? Imagine this morning as I'm beginning to speak, uh, just a few minutes into the message, that that one of our ushers uh, brings a person down the center aisle uh, and uh, just a few minutes into the message so that everybody would see him, and uh, here he comes. He's, he's, uh, he's dressed in the finest of uh, Harry Rosen. The, the suit is the, is the finest that money can buy, uh, cloth from Italy, uh, worth $22,000 for the suit. And I thought, now, is that even possible, that you could have a $22,000 suit? So I looked it up. My goodness, you can have a $300,000 suit. I don't know what they put in the cloth. I mean, they must sew gold in it or something, but it's, it's incredible. But here he is. He's dressed to the nines, the cufflinks, uh, the tie, the shoes. Uh, I mean, it's, he's got it all. And uh, the rings are on his finger. The best that money can buy. And uh, this guy is decked out. And obviously, the, the usher is enamored by him. I mean, imagine that he came to our church, this guy. This posh gentleman who carries himself so well, he commands my attention. And it didn't take very much convincing for the usher to escort him right up to the very front seat. One of the chief seats in the whole building. And just so you know, these are the chief seats. Right up here at the front. You were all so humble, no one ever sits in them. Uh, Having had the privilege to, so, to graciously bring Mr. Poshman to the front, then the usher returns to the back of the auditorium to find a very poor man who had entered onto the church premises. And clearly this guy hadn't had a shower for a long time. His clothes were dirty. And, uh, well, there was just nothing about you, about him, that gave a sense that he could command anybody's attention. Actually, the usher felt a little jolt of indignation that you know, why can't you just leave us alone, your kind, you know? Why do you have to make us feel uncomfortable? And so he swung into action and he said, listen, man, you can stand over there or you can sit on the floor any place, but, but not here. So that's the story. And that becomes the setting for all that James wants to say about prejudice. Pastor Adam took the first half of the passage And then he delegated the second half to the next pastor up to bat. So here goes. I want to give you four coat hooks on which to hang our thoughts 
this morning, and I have to go back to the beginning of the story so the end makes sense. Uh, but on the first coat hook, please hang the word principle or command. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? Now, do you remember how we defined prejudice? Our English word, prejudice, comes from a Latin noun that emphasizes a prejudgment of someone causing us to form an opinion before all the facts are in. Have you ever done that? Have you ever prejudged a situation and you spoke to it without having all the facts? All of us have, I'm sure. I have sometimes shuddered at how far I missed it, how, thought, I, how I thought I had my, uh, my mind wrapped around the context of that situation only to miss it by a mile. The word favor in verse 1 is a fairly lengthy Greek word that I would destroy if I was to pronounce it. But here's what it means. It means receiving the face. Receiving the face. You see a person's outward appearance, namely his or her face, and you receive that image as if it's the real thing. You make all of your judgment of that person based on their face. Wow. I, do we do that? It doesn't take us long to think that if we do that, that's not a great idea to make a whole bunch of assumptions just by looking at somebody's face as if we're that good that we could judge somebody by their face. And we could miss it either way. They look great, but their character doesn't match. Or they look very ordinary, but all oh, the integrity and the character and, and the heart they have. We don't know. So the command is clear. James puts the cookies on the lowest shelf. How can you claim to have faith in Jesus Christ and then favor some people over another? You discriminate. And that's the whole message of James chapter 2. And that's the reason why prejudice and partiality are so wrong. They are wrong because they represent first impressions which are seldom right. So the first principle, first the point is principle or command. Now the second coat hook is the problem. The problem. And that's the illustration. I won't read it for you. But I want to tell you some, uh, a little bit of a historical uh, story. Did you know how John Wesley dealt with elitism and favoritism in the church? It's way back in the 1700s. The Church of England went through a time when they were elitist and inhospitable to the everyday person. And in 1739, John Wesley had to take to the graveyards, no less, and to the fields to preach the gospel. Not in a church building. John Wesley couldn't get in. There are accounts of him preaching to 30,000 coal miners at dawn in the field and the resulting saving power of God coming upon these 30,000 men and perhaps some women. And uh, the evidence was uh, the repentance and the tears streaming down the faces of the coal miners. It wasn't Wesley's intent to divide a church. 
It was just the fact that there was no room in the established church at that time for common people. And Wesley founded, as you know, the Methodist Church. It was God leading him to speak into the world about favoritism, that the gospel is for everyone. And the Methodist Church, in a sense, was founded because the established church brushed off the ordinary person in that particular season. Now, this sounds crazy, but the reality was that a hundred years after the establishment of the Methodist Church, there was some shift in the Methodist Church so that the poorest of the poor didn't feel welcome now in the Methodist Church. I think we have to watch in every generation what are the signals that we're sending. Are we welcoming? Then a man by the name of William Booth noticed that the poor were never in church. And they, they didn't seem to be welcome. And Booth, who is, was the founder of the Salvation Army, went out into the streets. And one day, he brought all the poor people into the church before the established church people came. And he filled all the pews with the poor people. And uh, the, the, the rich people came along later. They weren't able to put their, their money into the offering baskets. That upset the establishment. And things did not go well for William Booth. Now, prior to this, even if a poor person came to a London church, they entered by another door. They were seated on benches without backs. They were behind a partition which was screened off from the pulpit. They could see but not be seen. And William Booth went through a great struggle and he learned that Methodism had become respectable. And he ended up founding the Salvation Army that to this day reaches out to the poorest of the poor with an amazing ministry even here in our city these days. So we've already looked at the story, what James told about the usher, verses 2 to 4. And sometimes you need a story. You need a story to illustrate the point, uh, to make it come alive. Uh, we, we've had to think about all the comments that come with receiving the, receiving the face. Because you and I have grown up in homes, and we've seen the problem from the earliest of years. And now as adults... We're desperately trying to free ourselves from the prejudice that we grew up with in our homes. We say to our kids, that's no longer true on my watch. We don't think that way anymore. But still we discover that prejudice fills our lives. And I didn't even realize how much in my own life. You know, years ago we went through a generation of people who said, you know, her hair is too short. You, you, can't, you can't wear your hair that short as a woman. And then another generation, it turned to that his hair is too long. And then what about men wearing earrings? And we went through that generation. And then what's with the tattoos? But we got over it. And what's with it? She has a PhD. He didn't graduate from high school. So what's up with those comments? Now, our, our kids go to public school. Our kids go to Christian school. Ours are homeschoolers. Sometimes there's something in the way we say that. They're just statements. 
But it's easy to draw some conclusions merely on what is seen with the first look, what's heard with the first words. A modern version of the story actually did happen one Sunday in the Bel Air Presbyterian Church in Los Angeles. Former President Ronald Reagan and his wife Nancy attended this church. But it was while they were the, he was the governor of California. And they would usually sit on the aisle seats about two-thirds of the way back. And on this particular morning, Ronald Reagan and his wife Nancy were late. And by the time they got there, two college students had occupied their seats. So an usher came down and asked the students, they would move off to the side. And they complied to that. They moved, and then Ronald and Nancy Reagan were brought in, and they were seated there. To his credit, the pastor got up from his place on the platform, walked down to where the college students were reseated, and said, as long as I'm the pastor of this church, that will never happen again. So James gives us this problem. It's really an illustration, and it's an example that I, I'm sure was happening over and over again in the local assembly places and in the church, and that's the problem. It just takes so many forms today. It's just an example of, of what it looks like. Then the third code hook is called perspectives, or it's the explanation that James gives to deal with the issues. Have you seen the new Canadian $10 bill? I don't know if we got it. Yeah, there it is. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't held it yet. I've just seen pictures of it. But it warms my heart. What a great awareness for Canada that we honor a woman that we discriminated against, Viola Irene Desmond. She was a Canadian, black, Nova Scotia businesswoman who challenged racial segregation at a cinema in a new Glasgow, Nova Scotia uh, theater. And she refused to, to leave, to move out of the whites-only section of the Roseland Theater. And so they didn't know what to do with her. They convicted her of a minor tax violation for the one-cent tax difference between the seat she had paid for and the seat she actually used, which was one cent more expensive. That thing went to court. And Desmond's case is one of the most publicized incidents of racial discrimination in Canadian history helped actually start the, the uh, modern civil rights movement in Canada. I just say, way to go, Bank of Canada, for that important decision to draw that out and to say, that's not who we are. Every country has to deal with its stuff from years ago. But also today, as you watch the story unfold about St. Michael's Boys School in Toronto, you realize that bullying is still around. Sexual assaults are still around. Oppression of religions is still around. The persecution of the Christian church around the world today is unprecedented. 255 Christians are killed every month somewhere in the world. 180 Christian women are raped, sexually harassed, or forced into marriage every month of the year. 66 churches are attacked every month. This year, over 3,000 Christians have been killed. So you see that discrimination is not just a nasty word, it's a matter of life and death. And James wants to give us some perspective on, on favoritism. 
He's going to explain it so that we can see what's happening in our own hearts. When something happens that's confusing, isn't it great to have somebody come along and put it into perspective? Uh, and James does it. I had to really slow down to read this, to see how it flows into context. My dad used to say in driving the old truck, when you're going up a hill, you've got to load with, you put it into compound low and just slow down and let's gear down and, 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 and get up the hill. So that's what we need to do here. Just kind of slow it down a little bit. There are three perspectives. There's a theological perspective that helps us understand what James is saying. Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who loved him? So that's a theological reason. The advantage that a poor person has uh, is that he or she uh, has a financial status uh, that draws them close to the heart of God. They're poor. They're humble. They're broken. They're, they're desperate. And they say yes to Jesus Christ because they're not proud. The problem a rich person has is that they're not as needy. They're not as desperate. They're not as dependent. And, and they take all of those external signs as a way to say, I don't really need God. I'm just fine the way I am. So prejudice in the story that James tells is inconsistent with the heart of God. That's just not his, his, his method. He, he never looks at a person and then checks their wallet and says, Ah, you've got money. Then you're the person I want in my heaven. Harvard Business Review blog called it Warren Buffett's Jerk Doctrine. Buffett, one of the wealthiest people in the world, once said, Of the billionaires I have known, money just brings out the basic traits in them. If they were jerks before they had money, they are simply jerks with a billion dollars. <laughs> and he might be right. But followers of Christ should be different. Increased wealth should make us more generous and better stewards of our money. God does not look at a man or woman either who is very poor, who's fallen on hard times and says, oh, that's the kind of person I want in my kingdom. I want all the poor people in my kingdom. That's not the point. The point is not the rich, not the poor, not the economic status, not any status, not fame or fortune or education. None of that is God's measuring stick. None of it. It's only the heart. It's only the heart. Remember that great verse in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7? It was all about the selection of the great king, of the second uh, king of Israel, uh, David. And Samuel said, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Rich or poor? Powerful or weak? Those things don't shift God's heart one iota. He is not partial. He looks at the heart. That's a theological perspective. And then there's a logical perspective. Where James says, but you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? So James says the logic is just crazy here. Open your eyes. 
Who is it that takes you to court? Who oppresses you? Why do you cozy up to the rich and you discriminate against your own brothers and sisters? You have people who are blaspheming the name that is above every name, and yet you are enamored by the guy who comes down the aisle in the finest Harry Rosen robe with jewelry sewn right into the fabric. James is saying, it's not logical. It makes no sense. And then there's a biblical perspective. Yes, indeed, it's good when you obey the royal law as found in the Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. Uh, now we're getting right down to the nub of it. Frankly, he's saying, prejudice is sin. It's sin. That's the biblical perspective. Now, you may not agree with uh, everything that Mayor Rudy Giuliani, the, the, the former mayor of New York City, really Rudy Giuliani said, but this is what he commented after the tragic morning of September 11, 2001. We call it 9-11. I really love his quote. He said, uh, you know, people, I've learned something through all of this. When everyone was fleeing that building and the cops and the firefighters and the EMS people were heading up into it, do you think any of them said, I wonder how many blacks are up there? I wonder how many whites are up there? I wonder how many Hispanics are up there? I wonder how many Jews are up there? Let's see what these people make. I wonder if there's some very rich people who make a half a million dollars a year up there or some who make only 25000 He says, no, when you're saving lives, they're all precious. And that's how we're supposed to live all the time. How would you want the cops to treat you if you were on the 75th floor that day? Would you want them to say, excuse me, but I got to get to the bosses. I got to get them out first. Can you just hold on? Not exactly. That's the royal law. It's the second of the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says that every commandment in the law of Moses is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the bottom line. So if you favor someone over another, you automatically break the royal law, and the royal law is the law of love. This law rules over all of the other laws. So James says, just call it for what it is. It's a sin. And when you show prejudice against someone else from another race or another culture or another educational background, we've violated the royal law. And what an interesting summary here in verse 10. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. It's quite a picture. Imagine a, imagine a person standing before the judge and confessing, yes, your honor, I confess I committed this murder. But before you sentence me, I just want to let you know that I've never committed adultery. We would laugh out loud. We would say, that's ridiculous. So what's James getting at? 
Call it what it is. It's sin. Because we are innocent in one category doesn't cancel the penalty for the sin we did commit. And he names the biggies, murder, adultery. But look at what he's really saying. Don't call partiality or prejudice a minor sin. Oh, everybody does that. That's just a social thing. Just give it a break. Breathe, breathe. We don't mean it when we say Polish jokes or Newfie jokes. I mean, I may be prejudiced against the people of a, of a different culture a little bit, but I certainly haven't killed anybody. Now, here's the point. The, the same God who tells us not to murder or commit adultery also tells us not to be discriminating, showing favor to one and not the other, having a prejudice. You see, if you're hanging over the cliff with a, with a chain and there are ten links on the chain, it doesn't matter how strong all the other links are. If there is one weak link, you're going down because they're all interconnected. So prejudice in the church has lingered over the generations because not, we've not really believed that it's all that serious. We've not really believed that it's all that serious. So that's a biblical perspective. Now the last code hook is what we would call practice or application. So whatever you say, whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no more mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Can I give you two quick applications? Number one, select the standard that will set you free. Select the standard that will set you free. The standard that we've learned through, uh, along life's journey, whether it be at home or school or university or, or our community, whatever it is, it, it's a different standard than the Scriptures. Select the standard that will set you free. And here's your measuring stick. Peter had to adjust his background experience when God showed him that the good news was not just for the Jews alone. Remember that story in Acts chapter 10? But also for the Gentiles. And the Apostle Paul spent most of his ministry stepping over all kinds of hurdles because his calling was to minister to the Gentiles. And there was such a huge wall between them. But Paul had to adjust his doctrine, his thinking as he heard from God. The second application is to show mercy to all you can. Tony Campolo tells the story. He says, I was walking down Chestnut Street in Philadelphia. There was a, a filthy bum covered with soot from head to toe. He had a huge beard. I'll never forget the beard. It was a gigantic beard with rotten food stuck in it. He held a cup of McDonald's coffee and he mumbled as he walked along the street. He spotted me and he said, Hey, mister, you want some of my coffee? I said, I, I knew I should take some to be nice. And I did. I drank a little bit and I gave it back to him. And I said, You're being pretty generous giving away your coffee this morning. What's gotten into you that you're giving away coffee all of a sudden? He said, Well, the coffee was especially delicious this morning and I figure if God gives you something good, you ought to share it with people. I figured this is the perfect setup. 
I said, is there anything I could give you in return? I'm sure he's going to hit me up for five bucks. He said, yeah, yeah. You can give me a big hug. I was hoping for the five dollars. He put his arms around me. I put my arms around him and I realized something. He's not going to let me go. He's holding on to me. Here I am, an establishment guy, and this guy's hanging on to me, and he's hugging me. He's not going to let me go. People are walking past on the, on the street, and they're staring at me, and I'm embarrassed. But then little by little, my embarrassment turned to awe. And I thought of those verses. I heard a voice echoing down the corridors of time saying, I was hungry. Did you feed me? I was naked. Did you clothe me? I was sick. Did you care for me? I was the bum you met on Chestnut Street. Did you hug me? For if you did it unto the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it unto me. And if you failed to do it unto the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you failed to do it unto me. I wonder, I wonder if the Lord will play a video back to us one day when we're in heaven. And he will show us the places where we showed mercy to someone else. How about a time in your life when you made a nobody in the world, you made them into a somebody? How about the time you treated a brother or sister of another culture, whether from in Canada or somewhere else in the world, and you blessed them, and you encouraged them, and you opened your heart to them, and you shared your resources with them? What about the time you protected the victim? You stood against the bully. What about the time you stood with someone else even though you didn't agree at all with their philosophy and their values? But you valued them as individuals. Four hooks. A principle. A problem. A perspective. And a practice. May they be a reminder of God's word to us today. Shall we stand together? Father, what a riveting pack of verses today. And the truths that are talked about here are true in every generation. Challenges that we face are just as true in our generation as they were in the first century or the 18th century. So, Father, I pray you'd give us eyes to see what your Spirit is saying to each of us. Help us to be able to just take this and say, this is where it fits in my life. We pray that you would adjust us, that you would renew us, that you would open our hearts to walk forth in faith. In Jesus' name.